On today's show, Tom and I are going to talk about some of the significant changes that experienced beekeepers have noticed about beekeeping, also the problem with honey blending, and a very interesting research paper pertaining to how bees pollinate. Let me say that again. On today's show, Tom and I are going to talk about some of the significant changes that experienced beekeepers have noticed about beekeeping, the problem with honey blending, and also new research that finds neonicotinoid pesticides harm the ability of bees to vibrate flowers and shake out pollen in order to fertilize crops. So first, I'd like to welcome to the show my co-host, Colorado beekeeper Tom Theobald. Hello, Tom. Hello, June, from cold Colorado. Well, tis the season, one more week, and it's Christmas and Hanukkah. Yep, we're in the winter. Well, it's been a very interesting year, especially as the research just continues to pile up. And also the comments that we receive from numerous beekeepers all over the world that talk about what they're experiencing. I would like to share a comment that was received by one of our listeners who had a question concerning absconding hives. And he writes, June, how many fall absconding hives have you heard of this year? And he says, I've heard of several, one of them being mine. No mites, really, no beetles, nothing that aggravated the hive. Plenty of stores, too, as I don't rob my bees, I just keep them around. It's strange. Last few springs, I've heard about lazy beers, lazy bees, but this year they're flying the coop to a certain death. So, Tom, can you explain what this beekeeper is experiencing from your own perspective? It's a little hard to determine exactly what he's talking about because absconding may uh, describe a number of things. Typically, absconding is a situation where a colony of bees would leave en masse, and that's very unusual, or it, at least it used to be very unusual. But as we began to see the problems with the neonicotinoids and their disruption of the nervous system of the bees, we started seeing swarms at odd times of the year. And let me back up just a little bit and define what swarming is. Swarming would typically take place in the early part of the season, um, April, May, and the first part of June, and that's a response to the growth of the colony, and when it becomes crowded, it will begin to raise new queens, and just before those new queens emerge, the old queen will leave with roughly half the population, and they're off to establish themselves in some new location. It's it's the way the bees divide and multiply. Absconding, on the other hand, is when the colony, the hive, is just vacated. That's very unusual, or, or at least used to be. We're seeing a lot of uh, declining colonies in the fall here in Colorado and in the rest of the country, and there are a number of possible things that can contribute to that. 
One is the mites. The mite population, if it's been uncontrolled, can begin to peak in early September and have a devastating effect on a colony. What we're seeing, however, though, are colonies that are declining, collapsing very rapidly in the fall, where the beekeepers have checked for mites and have find, found few, if any, mites. So it isn't it apparently is not the mites that are causing this fall collapse. Now, this collapse uh, can take a number of forms, and usually what happens is the field bees decline rapidly. They fly out and don't return. The brood dies because we believe that it's the delayed effect of the neonicotinoids that come by way of corn pollen that was stored in the summer and not utilized until fall. The absconding is, is something completely different, and uh, a dwindling colony that goes from a good population to zero may be described as some beekeeper, by some beekeepers as absconding, but more likely a collapse as a consequence of the neonicotinoid pesticides. At least that's my view of the situation. And it is going on all over the country, and it's becoming much more common. We've seen a very high level of of fall collapse here in Colorado. Tom, what are some of the other... Uh, Tom, I know that you teach a beekeeping course each year locally. What are some of the other things that you're teaching to new beekeepers that you didn't have to address not even five years ago that is something that's been incorporated into that program. Some of the more significant changes that have been taking place within the beekeeping community. Well, we try to uh, prepare the new beekeepers f for disappointment, which may sound a little strange, but even under the best of management, the good beekeepers are losing a half or more of their colonies. And those colonies are at greater risk in the hands of a beginner, not that they aren't trying, but they may not have the level of experience to recognize the different problems that develop. We're seeing we're seeing extremely high losses. In my own operation, where I was able to, to tend the colonies fairly closely, and I had about 200 colonies at my peak, my winter losses in a normal year would have been about 2 to 5 percent, and it's 30, 40, 60, 80 percent now for beekeepers. And uh, so we've had to talk to beekeepers about what they're likely to experience, even if they do everything right. We certainly have uh, spent more time on the neonicotinoids and the influence that they have on colony health. Um, it's always changing. It's always, you know, we try to respond to whatever is the current problem in the beekeeping industry and give the new beekeepers the best preparation we can for becoming beekeepers. Thank you, Tom. Are there any other significant changes that you've, that I guess have become part of the routine in order for the beekeeper to sustain the operation. For example, I know that Jeff Anderson from California, Minnesota Honey Farms, 
who's also on the board of the Pollinator Stewardship Council, has talked about some of the extremes he's had to go through in order to keep his operation afloat. And this is something that I know many people have been writing about, they've been asking questions about. So, Tom, could you just take a moment and just share some of these practices so that people can understand just how dire this situation is? Well, one of the ways that beekeepers compensate for these losses is to take their stronger colonies and divide them. And that that has worked for a time, but at some point you're taking your strong, the strongest part of your workforce and, and dividing them down, and when you do that, you cut into the potential honey crop uh, of that colony, and as a consequence, we've seen beekeepers trying to keep their numbers up because a major portion of the commercial beekeepers' income stream is from pollination in California in February. So they have to have those colonies in order to to make uh to access those pollination rental fees. What happened though is as you divide your colonies to try to recover the numbers, the honey crop drops. And I was looking just recently at the figures from the USDA and I was looking specifically at Colorado. Colorado is reported to have 27,000 colonies of bees. In 1990, at the beginning of the problems with the encapsulated parathion, PENCAP-M, Colorado had 55,000 colonies of bees. In the next 10 years, we lost more than 30,000 of those, primarily to pesticides. The mites had not shown up yet. Um, I looked at the figures, the current figures, production figures, and the USDA reports that the average colony production for Colorado is 37 pounds per colony. Now, before all these problems began, that would have been perhaps 80 pounds per colony. So the, the production has dropped in half, and even that may be inflated. When I was running my operation, I ran what's called a two-queen operation, where I would establish a second queen in a colony and have a very high-performance colony of bees, and I would expect a two-queen colony to produce a surplus of about 240 pounds. And it was that level of production that made my business viable. It's difficult to get any kind of crop at all anymore. It's a, this is a disaster. You know, we've been forecasting this disaster for some time, and I think we're in it. Well, I just would like to I, – I agree with you, Tom. I just would like to point out for our listeners that if they'd like to take a look at this research, it is available on the USDA's website, and the data that was published is dated March 22nd of this year. However – this information, it leads to our next topic, which is the dilution of the honey industry. If we take a look at what has happened with the maple syrup industry, it's a perfect example of what appears to be happening with the honey industry. Maple syrup at one point 
point, maple syrup and maple sugar at one point was considered currency many, many, many years ago. And now most people are, have, have not had the opportunity to experience the taste of real maple syrup, much less maple sugar. It's simply too expensive to make. And now we see an abundance of maple-flavored products, and it basically started in the same fashion. You had a big demand for maple. Then you had all the different maple laundering operations that were going on where the maple farmers were not protected. You had product that was being mixed with high-fructose corn syrup and other sweeteners to kind of stretch out the flavor and dupe the consumer. And now it's at the point where maple is not a dominant sweetener. It's something that people do enjoy, but unfortunately it's not what it used to be. And with honey, we're seeing the same thing. We see how honey is being imported from South America, from Canada, from all different parts of the world, and being blended with American honey. And we're also seeing products on the market where it's honey-flavored. And folks, I can't stress it enough, check your labels. If you're going to buy honey in the supermarket, at least have the decency to check the labels. Don't buy it if it's not American. The best thing that you can do is contact your local beekeeping association and support the local beekeepers. Buy local honey. Because yeah, what, I think that... What's going to happen with, with, with honey is... Or what happened with maple, I think is going to happen with honey. There's always been a suspicion uh, about the... Uh, purity of honey and it goes all the way back as far as 1900 there have always been people who are willing to cut corners to add sugar syrup it's it's not been a major problem but it's always been a concern of consumers and beekeepers and they've done beekeepers have done everything they could to police their own ranks within the last oh 20 or 25 years the pressure for that blending, as you call it, or adulteration, has increased, and we have some slippery characters in the honey business, just like we do in any other business. And I think, as you said, June, the best way to assure that what you're getting is first-class honey is to establish a connection with your local beekeepers and buy directly from the producers. I couldn't agree more, and I, I'm constantly reminding people about the medicinal value of honey. The ancient Egyptians used to use honey for medicinal purposes. There's so many different uses for honey. And also, folks, check out an article that's posted on theorganicview.com, which features an interview that I did with Tom quite a while ago in regards to the importance of beeswax candles. We had a lot of great feedback about that, but once again, it's the significant impact of the honeybee on our lives. And if we don't do something to protect honey, I'm afraid that what happened with the maple industry is going to be what happens with the honey industry. And it would be really a shame because it is such a huge part of agriculture. Yes, I think... For the, for the average consumers, the important thing is to buy their honey locally, 
seek out the local beekeepers and establish a connection with them. That's that's the best answer to this question of whether or not it's blended or from some other country. There's great concern about Chinese honey, which is being transshipped through other countries to avoid tariffs, and and there have been problems with contamination of Chinese honey. Um, the best answer to that is to buy your honey locally. Get to know your local beekeepers while we still have beekeepers. Thank you, Tom. There's a new research paper that was published by Penelope Whitehorn of the University of Stirling, which is located in Scotland. And she is she is one of the folks that has done quite a bit of work with Dr. Chris Connolly, who's been on the show many times. And this latest re- research, this latest research proves once again, I mean, nothing new, but it's yet again another paper that focuses on the impact of neonicotinoid pesticides on our honeybees. And this research finds that neonicotinoid pesticides harm the ability of bees to vibrate flowers and shake out the pollen, which is essential for fertilization. This is primarily the bumblebees. The bum- bumblebees are the main pollinator of tomatoes, and tomatoes require what they're describing, buzz pollination. And the bumblebee, as it's been told to me, the bumblebee will grab the anther of the blossom in its jaws and then will vibrate its flight muscles, and that causes the uh, tomato flower to release its pollen, like pepper from a pepper shaker. And this is how the bumblebees collect that pollen. I've been told that in uh, tomato growing operations in greenhouses where they don't have bumblebees for pollination, that frequently uh, youngsters are hired and sent around the greenhouse with tuning forks to accomplish what the bumblebees would be accomplishing, which is to buzz pollinate. Uh, It's not surprising that this is one of the effects of the neonicotinoids. They've had a wide-ranging neurological effect on the honeybees, the bumblebees, the solitary bees, and they've manifested their damage in a whole host of ways. And the fact that it impairs the bumblebee's ability to buzz pollinate certainly comes as no surprise to those of us who've been paying attention. Well, this is no different than what's happening in many parts of China, which has been documented and featured in the film More Than Honey, which was produced by Marcus Imhoof. It really presents a very realistic view of the future if we don't ban neonicotinoid pesticides. And furthermore, if you take a look at Madagascar vanilla, how they have to hand pollinate the plant because the insect that naturally pollinated the vanilla is now extinct, that's basically what's in our future. Well, hand pollinating is really not an answer in the United States. There might no, it's, be a- it's it's ridiculous. But the bottom line is is that that's what we're looking at. If our soil becomes that toxic, that bees cannot thrive. 
Well, I think if the bees cannot thrive and we don't have the bees for pollination, we just lose those crops that required that pollination. Hand pollination might serve for some of the most valuable, most limited of crops. But for most of the things that we consume that are dependent upon pollination, the loss of the pollinators, in most cases the honeybee, means the loss of the crop. And our food selection will become much more limited. That's what I said. Well, you were right. <laughs> Once I'm again. Try- <laughs> I'm not trying to be right. I, I just would like people to wake up to what's going on. It seems well, the as point, though... It the, seems point as was, though go ahead. the point I was trying to make is that hand pollination can be done it's interesting. I did that when I was in college. I had a part-time job where I worked for a graduate student, and my responsibility was the cross-pollination of radishes and kohlrabi. And I did that with a camel hair brush. All of the flowers were bagged, so we had absolute control over what got pollinated. And I would spend my afternoons with my little camel hair brush addressing the pollination requirements of these plants for this uh, graduate student's research. And between every pollination, I would have to dip my little camel hair brush in alcohol and then dry it off. And, um, very, you know, I know from personal experience that it's very, very time-consuming, and there's no way that we're going to be able to do that to any great extent for for the things that we eat that depend upon pollination. It's ridiculous that we even have to even think about this. We're going to have to think about it much more. Industry is making billions of dollars off of these chemicals. We We still have an opportunity to do something, and unfortunately it seems as though, like with anything else, until enough people have suffered, then people will take action. So. Well, these... These products are billion-dollar products if there's no accounting for the damage that's being done, and there isn't. The only reason they're billion-dollar products is because they come at billions of dollars of damage to the environment, and the and the companies are getting off scot-free. We're the ones who bear the cost of that. We're the communal owners of that environment, and they're damaging our environment, and they're getting away with it. Well, are they really getting away with it? The bottom line is is that we, humans, there's a lot of feedback on your thing. The bottom line is that we, as in humans, drink the same water that the bees and other pollinators do. So inevitably there will be a price to be paid. Tom, thank you so much for joining me today. And folks, please tune in next week as Tom and I continue the discussion. If you have any questions, please write to us at questions at theorganicview.com or you can reach me on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, what have you. Feel free to contact us. Tune in next week as, as, tune in next week as Tom and I continue the discussion. Thank you, Tom. Thank Bye, you, everybody. June. You're welcome. Have a great afternoon, everyone. This has been June Stoyer with the Organic View Radio Show. <laughs>